I've been talking about that I really want to talk about or to discuss this matter, Oop, and that's on your handout so you can see that there, is the questions that matter. I've asserted or suggested there are four. I'm sure there may be more than that, but there are four of them I'm kind of wrestling with. And, uh, you know, uh, the, the matter of asking questions uh, is, is a pretty important habit in life. I, I think I told you last week that they did some studies of mothers in the U.K., uh, not University of Kentucky, uh, the United Kingdom. <clears throat> That's where I live for a while. Uh, that children uh, before four, age, four, year, four years of age ask their mother about 300 questions a day. Can I get a witness here? <laughs> yeah, why, 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 why? Uh, and, but, but the average adult asks about 10. And, you know, something happens to our inquisitiveness. Something happens to our need to know. Maybe, maybe we think we already know it. I, and, and some questions, you know, are more important than others. I, I thought of a, a question that's not, not that important. Uh, Becky and I were talking about this on the toilet paper. Over or under? <laughs> just asking. I'm just asking. Right. Becky, Becky tells me there have been marital uh, uh, conflicts over there. I never change it, so I don't know how it is anyway, so... You know, I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, I've asked this question. I've, I've wondered about it. I've thought about it, you know, uh, in terms of who did the better job, Dennis Quaid or Val Kilmer on Doc Holliday? It was absolutely. <clears throat> can't, can't, that's just a non-question. You know, when you ask the question here about, about music like Beatles or Rolling Stones, it's Beatles. see, we're a divided nation. <clears throat> Man, we're a divided nation. Everybody knows it's a Rolling Stones. I mean, everybody. Anybody that knows anything, you know. So, I mean, so there are, so there are questions that matter. There's questions that don't matter. Uh, you know, there, there are some questions. I can remember uh, I asked this question again. I think I said it last week. Will Becky go out with me? <laughs> I had some uh, undercover work being done at the time to find out that, you know. Uh, you know, uh, some of you asked this question. I know uh, recently it's a pretty important. Should I take this job? And you have a new offer, another opportunity, and think, uh, should I take it? I don't know. Other, other, other times we ask these big important questions. You know, we, we, we get reflective at times and we say, what do I want my legacy to be? What, what do I want to leave behind? What do I want to have as a legacy? Th those are really important questions. Those, those are big questions. And so I've said there are four, at least in my mind, that I talk to my students about often that I try to bring, if you will, every teaching that I ever teach, every teaching I ever teach, I think is trying to get around one of these. Here they are. I gave it to you last week. Give them to you again. Number one, is there a God? Uh, <clears throat> there has to be some consideration here. There has to be some, some discussion. Uh, I think we have people that have genuine intellectual questions and problems, and we can't just blow that off. So is there a God? Now, if you say no, you don't have to answer the next three. But that's the first one. The second one then if there is a God, and we're trying to argue that there's a high probability of that, the second question is, then what is this God like? That makes a lot of difference now. If there is a God, and there are lots of people that will tell you there is a God, but what is this God like? That's an important question. Third question uh, that follows that, I think, is then what does this God, I've, asserted, I've asserted there is a God, I've asserted this is what this God is like. The third one, what does this God require of me? What is it? What, are, what, what, what requirement is there or are there uh, for uh, 
this God? What, what are the requirements? I mean, they're... Got, people got all kinds of lists. I went to a church that made a new list up every week. And, uh, you know, I found another church that had a different list. I went to that church. And uh, <laughs> in our church, uh, they would always ask us, you know, can Christians dance? And I would just say, well, some can and some can't. And uh, <laughs> you all have heard that. Come on. Uh, I found a church, though, no kidding, that they could dance. And so I thought, I want to be a member, you know. Um, so, 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 you know, we got to get past some of that stuff. What, what does this God really require of me? And the fourth question that just beats my brains out uh, that I'm working on still, I have obviously, I've worked through this over the years, but, but the last one is this. What can I expect from this God? How involved is this God in my life? How, how engaged is this God? How, how related uh, to my life and, and reality is this God? So th- those, are big, those are big questions. Uh, and I, I find that when I'm uh, working or studying or teaching that I'm generally somewhere in that mix. I'm somewhere referring to the notion of the kind of God we have or the, the nature that there is a God or what does this God expect of me or what can I reasonably expect from that God, this God. So I, I just I, I offer that to you. That's where. So we, we've been asking this first question. And last week uh, I said, here's some initial considerations. I do want you to consider again that what we're dealing with here is probability versus possibility. Probability versus possibility. Somebody said to me, is it possible there's no God? I say, yep, it's possible. Uh, it's also possible that you're going to choke to death when you eat lunch today, isn't it? Right? I've watched some of y'all eat. <laughs> I mean, it's possible, isn't it? That you could choke to death? Is nobody going to eat lunch because that possibility is lying out there? It's possible you could be killed in a car wreck going home. Uh, there are people that are crazy drivers, uh, things that happen. It's possible, but nobody lives by the possible. Nobody. You cannot live by the possible. We have to live by the probable. What has the highest probability? What is it that the evidence would lead me to a conclusion that has a higher probability? And so that, that's, a, that's an important, I think I got that on there. Maybe I don't. Maybe I do. Yeah, there it is. <clears throat> it's possible I do. <laughs> it's not probable. <laughs> So, so that's an important distinction that we have to keep in mind. Uh, the, the other thing is the study of science as the study of causes. Isaac Newton said that the study of science is the law of causality. If something exists in the universe, what's the cause? That's what science attempts to do all the time. That's the scientific method to try to figure out. Here's a hypothesis. Here's what I suggest. Let's go test it. What's the cause? So we're also trying to say that the way we're going at this question is what could there be, or could there be, asserting there's a God because of the universe we live in? So I, I'm, I'm trying to go at it as, as scientifically as I can, or that is, are, are available. Of, of course, we can't put God under a, you know, a microscope, uh, but we can study adequate uh, probability with respect to causes, okay? So, so uh, uh, that's where we're going. Now, last week, and I'm just running you through here real quick. Last week, we looked at the origin of the universe. How did it start? Um, and that is the, what we call the cosmological argument. Um, the origin of the universe. The Big Bang has, at least at this place, demonstrated that the universe started from nothing. Einstein's theory of relativity uh, begins that process to where the universe did not start with a little bit or something. Matter is not eternal. That's Einstein's discovery and the discovery of science of the Big Bang Theory. Matter is not eternal. It began somewhere at some time. So if matter's not eternal, the suggestion would be then there's something that is, 
right? There's something outside of that that caused it. I gave you some uh, resources here if you're, if you're interested, uh, if you're interested in that kind of thing. Second thing we looked at is uh, the, um, the uh, order of the universe, the details. Um, uh, the, 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 that's the teleological argument or that uh, the, the precision in the universe. We, uh, Dr. Ben Harvey was here last week, you know, talked a bit about the structure of the eye, the, 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 the detail. I don't think I have this on your outline, but it's this principle of the anthropic, A-N-T-H-R-O-P-I-C, the anthropic principle, or the anthropic constant. The anthropic constants, that this universe is so precisely arranged that there's little variation available in this universe or human life wouldn't exist. Uh, Swiback, the UCLA physicist I said last week said, that if gravitation was changed... By this much, point, so we're not in a whole number, okay? We're point, go 37 zeros, one, and human life couldn't exist. That's, that's the kind of variation that we can put. If the sun was a little closer, we'd burn up, you know? Uh, or, if it was, or if it was colder, we would think we're living in Minnesota. Uh, so we'd freeze to death, right? So, so that anthropic constant. Now, here's the one I want to deal with today. We're going to deal with this one. The ordeal of the universe. The ordeal. <clears throat> um, I'm using this term here uh, because I, I want to move it uh, to this idea that this word ordeal um, in Old English or in German uh, means uh, judgment. How do we draw a judgment here? There's an ordeal, I think, that, that, that occurred in the universe that at least causes us to consider uh, there's a judgment here that there is a God. And so what we're trying to do is discuss or look at, and I'm just going to tell you what I think it is. And I'm going to use some, we're going to look at the Bible. So here's what I think the ordeal of the universe that lends itself to the cause, and that's called the resurrection. The resurrection. The resurrection is the cause or the ordeal of the universe that I would suggest gives some evidence uh, to the idea that there is a God. Um, it's interesting if you'll turn your Bibles to, uh, it's not interesting to turn, I'm thinking. Uh, go to your table of contents and find 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to look at this, 1085 in my Bible. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians 10, or 1 Corinthians 15. And I want to look at uh, here uh, this uh, matter. I, I would tell you that uh, as we uh, look at this, uh, the matter of, of, uh, of in, in, in the universe of the the the, the reality of the gospel, how do we account for it? Let, let me give you a couple things while you're turning there, the 1 Corinthians 15. Um, it, it seems, if, if we take a scripture here and look at this here in a moment, that, um, that something happened that caused a bunch of monotheists who believed in one God, you know, prayed the Shema every day, uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God. Here's a group of people that were strict monotheists all their life, every day. And at some point, they believed there was a guy that they slept with, ate dinner, or slept back up. <laughs> camped out with, <laughs> camped out with, stay with your notes here. Camped out with, they ate with him, they walked the paths of Israel. And they came to this conclusion. He's God. Okay. What's the cause of that? 
Okay? I mean, we're, we're back to the idea that science is the discussion of the causes. So, so here are these guys, strict monotheists. Here are these people who, if you will, uh, uh, ate with this guy. They lived together uh, throughout uh, Judea as they walked the paths. They, they come to this conclusion, this guy's God. How'd that happen? Second, another factor is it's clear in the Bible, if you will, that none of these people are people that are brave. Uh, at the crucifixion or afterwards, uh, it's pretty clear uh, that these uh, men uh, and the followers of Jesus desert him, and they are not willing to run the risk of being attract, uh, attached to him. And so in, in one sense, you have to ask the account, what, what, what accounts for this change in these people's lives? Uh, is it some mass delusion? We're going to look at that. Is it, is it just some crazy idea they came up with? Or is there something that could cause this? I want to keep coming back to this. Science is what? The discussion or discovery of causes. So we have strict monotheists who now are willing to say the guy that we met and know is God. How did they come to that conclusion? Two, how do we account for the change in their life we'll see from being cowards, if you will, and being absolutely unwilling uh, to... Uh, to uh, uh, do anything that would cause them harm, they change that. So let's look here at First Corinthians 15. Here's what Paul writes in First Corinthians 15, 1. I'm going to just read through here for a second. Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also I received, which you also stand, but which also you, were, you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you've believed in vain. That's interesting here. You might want to mark the word vain here shows up several times. Paul is willing to say that there is the possibility that something or these people's lives may have believed in vain or there may be something about the Christian life that makes it. And the Greek word for vain means empty, meaningless, meaningless. For he says in verse 3, For I delivered to you also a first importance of what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep, some, some have died. And then he appeared to James and all the apostles, and to the last of all, as to one untimely or untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, and I am not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace did not prove vain. There it is, see, empty. But this idea of emptiness. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Whether then it was I or they, I preached what, or I, uh, so we preach and so we believe. Now watch this. Now if Christ has preached that he's been raised from the dead, how does some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain. There it is again. And your faith is in vain. Now, let me tell you why I think that's so important here as we deal with this ordeal about how do we account for the change in lives? How do we, we account for the presence of the church? How do we account for the presence of people? Paul has handed his opponents... The one thing, the only thing they have to do to destroy 
the truth of this message. What is it? Huh? Disprove the resurrection. He just handed them. He's not hiding the ball. He's not saying, oh, we got to be careful here. He's saying, listen, let me tell you something. If Christ has been raised, this is all a joke. He hands them the key. Now, if you're talking about somebody that's trying to hide the ball or try to do propaganda, that's not a good move. He says, this is everything based on this matter of the resurrection. And so Paul gives these opponents the key to unraveling the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what evidence do we have to believe the probability of the resurrection? What evidence do we have? What, what could we say, if you will, that there is some probability of the resurrection? I'm going to give you several. Here we go. Get ready to write, okay? <clears throat> Number, here we go. Number one, the place, the testimony of the resurrection begins. Where did these people start talking about Jesus is alive? Remember? Remember where it was? Where? No, where, where did they begin to declare it? To, in Jerusalem? Yeah. Well, what had happened uh, a few days before that? He'd been crucified. There are some estimates that there were nearly a million people in Jerusalem at the time. And so this was a highly visible, not done in some corner kind of situation. And these disciples decide, we're going to begin to proclaim this, and we're going to tell it in the place that it happened, where the Romans are, where the Jews are, where everybody saw it. Now, I've said this before to my students. I think, you know, it's difficult to fabricate a story where it happened. You know, if I wanted to tell a big yarn on Eric, which would be easy, <laughs> it'd be real easy. I could make up any kind of yarn I want to in Oklahoma City. But if I went to the big town of Shattuck, you know, where everybody knows everybody and then some, right? It'd be much more difficult for me to make up some fantastical, crazy yarn about him in Shattuck. It would be very difficult. Here these people, these, uh, if you will, uh, 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 disciples, begin to tell the story of the resurrection in the very place it happened. Now, I'll tell you that, why that is, for me is important. Because the Romans executed Jesus, essentially, because they didn't want an uproar. Uh, finally, the, the Jews convinced them, hey, you know what? We don't want an uproar here, and Tiberius didn't want to hear about this. So he surrenders it. Listen, you think the Romans want this kind of uproar? Not much. And so the very place that this begins suggests, wait a minute. Why, why would you start here if there wasn't some way in order to convince people of that matter? Let's, let's go on here. Next thing. The time of the testimony. <clears throat> One of the arguments of liberal scholars is that the church made this story up later uh, to sort of, uh, you know, validate what they believed. But there's a lot of evidence, and what Paul is writing right here is considered uh, kind of the proto-gospel or the beginning of the gospel, that within, right at the beginning, the gospel begins, it isn't fabricated over time. It begins incredibly quickly. That's interesting here because in the ancient world, I can tell you this, the earliest account that we have of Alexander the Great, the, the earliest account we have of, 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 of a Greek historian, 
is 400 years after Alexander's life. Theodocles wrote a book for about Caesar that, that is a, about 100 years later. What's interesting is this, in the ancient world, things aren't written down very fast after they happen. This thing got written down within 15 to 17 years of it happening. There was no concern. Now, why would you want to tell it quickly when it says, here, here's, here's, the, here's the argument. It would be that you got too many people that could contradict it. If you start it quick, he even says here, there are many who saw this, notice here, of 500 or so, but many of them are still alive. Still alive. This wasn't something that was done hundreds of years later where nobody could contradict it. It was the timing of this. It happened quick. It happened fast. And there are thousands of witnesses that could contradict it if they could. I, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised at this. I, I'm surprised the Romans or the Jews didn't get together and work together. And if you look like Jesus, you're a dead man. <laughs> They're going to take you out and kill you, drive some nails through your hands, and drag you through the street to put this thing down fast. There's no evidence that ever happened. There's no evidence that anyone ever produced a body. So this testimony begins here. Third, <clears throat> the first witnesses. The first witnesses. You may recall in the uh, garden, who was it that first saw Jesus? Mary. Mary. Yeah. Now, it's interesting here. I, I don't have a lot of time to undo this. But in 1 Corinthians 15, she's not mentioned. That's interesting. I want to make a point about that later. Talks about Cephas and talks about the apostles and talks about large crowds and like that. She's not mentioned. But it's fascinating in the Gospels that you have here the first witness, and the first, the first witness is a woman. Do you know anything about, well, of course you don't know anything about women, but I mean, that's, <laughs> nobody does. <clears throat> right, nobody knows anything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the ancient world, however, again, this speaks to the, this speaks to the probability of the, of the reliability. If these guys are making this up, they know in this ancient world women were completely barred from giving testimony in court. They were considered unreliable. And so no one would ever take the witness or the testimony of a woman. Here, they're the first ones. Do you see how counter the gospel is? How counterculture it is? That, that women would never... Why? Listen, if they're making this up, they could do a better job. <laughs> right? The first witnesses, the first witness here, if you will, is women who give an account that this one is risen, and they're talking about it in town where it happened within days of its occurrence. Next one. The conversion of unlikely people. <clears throat> uh, it's interesting in, um, um, in court, I'm, I'll give you some, it, every, uh, and maybe this term is used loosely, but we call this, or can call this, called enemy attestation. Enemy attestation. This is the phenomenon of those who were opposed to the message or didn't believe it become adherents and champions of what they previously opposed. This is enemy attestation. Now you've got someone speaking to it, defending that was before, if you will, before against it. There are two people I'd refer you to in this case. 
James, the brother of Jesus, who later becomes a follower. And if you remember, you can write this down in Mark 3. In Mark 3, uh, Jesus' family comes to him at a certain point in his ministry because they think he's lost his mind. Did you ever read that in Mark? Go read it. See, that's a test next week. <laughs> they, they, they come to they think he's lost his mind. They're coming to take him to the doctor, you know. Mark, or, or, or James is not an early convert. To, of his, can you imagine, you know, if somebody said, yeah, your brother's the son of God. Wait a minute. <laughs> right? <clears throat> right? Your brother's the son of the living, transcendent God. I don't think so. I tried to tell my brother that once. He didn't believe it either. <laughs> My sister used to say to me that she didn't have to do what I said because she was the director of the world. And I said, I know, Lisa, but I'm the director of the universe, and you work for me. <laughs> she didn't believe me either. So, so this idea of the conversion of unlikely people. Now, if you read the New Testament as well, you'll discover it says in Acts that many of the Pharisees believed. And they're not idiots. Again, this happened in their hometown. This happened in their lifetime. They're not idiots. And so this idea of enemy attestation, the, maybe the most famous one is Saul, or we call Paul. He, he wasn't just against it. He was killing, if you will. Uh, he was killing people uh, who, who uh, 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 were, were, were communicating it. So Paul in Acts 9, or Saul, if, if you will, the, 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 the persecutor of the church. His conversion is unlikely, and he becomes the champion of this message. You know, it'd be like me converting to become an OU fan. Y'all are still working on that, but hadn't happened yet. You know, I, I, I said to someone the other day, I said, you know, I've been thinking about pulling for OU, except when they play for Texas. And somebody said, who are you and what have you done with Cliff? That would be enemy attestation, right? No, it's not. I'm not an enemy, sort of. <laughs> The idea of someone who has been so against something for so long that now changes. That has to be taken into account. Uh, third, or whatever we are, number D, whatever, I don't know what number one. Somebody said, can you show the previous slide again on this? Which one was that? What slide? Tell me to stop. All right, class, you're going to have to stay in after class. <laughs> got to stay up. You got to stay up. No. All right, here we go. If you need some more, I'll put this up. The, the, this other one, the matter of different accounts. Now, listen, if you study the Bible, I, you know, uh, people uh, that don't study carefully or just accept it sometimes uh, need to be coached up a little bit from this standpoint. But there is some question for some people in that there are differing accounts in the Gospels. Uh, for instance, in one of the Gospel accounts at the resurrection, there are two angels. Another one, there's how many? One. And people that are kind of have you know, inquiring minds want to know why. You know? And, and, and they're, they're concerned about that. And, and I want to tell you that this is a big issue for people. In fact, I will tell you that for Muslim people, people in the Muslim faith, the biggest, one of the biggest hurdles they have about the gospel is that there are four. There ought to be one. 
right? They're thinking there ought to be one instead of four. There are four, and there are differing accounts here. Now, how do we make sense of that is, is a couple of things. Uh, one is I don't think the differing accounts suggest uh, some kind of construction to say they're false. Uh, 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 for instance, uh, uh, each of these gospels, each of these gospels, have a theological point. Now, let me say that they're not just biographies or diaries. Each gospel has a theological point they're trying to drive, and there is some selection of material. For instance, in Matthew, the theological concern is how is this Jesus the fulfillment? Of the Old Testament. That's where you see this over and over and over and over and over and over and over. This was to fulfill. This was that no other gospel does that. This was to I mean, at the rate, this was to fulfill, this was to fulfill, this was to fulfill. And so they're not just simply writing down, we did this on Thursday, and then we did this on Friday, and then we had this for lunch. They're not biographies. They're theological documents that are attempting to communicate something about the incredible breadth of who Jesus is. Mark, Mark's theological notion is, how do you know who this guy is? If you read through the Gospel of Mark, you'd see seven different times this statement is, I know who you are, I know who you are, I know who you are, and they're all devils. Except for two. Peter says it in the middle, and the guy at the cross, the soldier. You know what it's telling us? You don't know who Jesus is if you don't have supernatural insight. The devils know him. Nobody else does. When Peter says he knows who he is, what do he say? Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. My father is in heaven. Mark is trying to say, you don't figure this out with just some intellectual kind of discussion. This has to be supernatural revelation. That's Mark's big point he's driving. When you get to that seventh one at the cross, this is the Son of God. Mark pulls out to say, when you look at the cross, you know who he is. So you got to see that. In fact, it's, it's a little comical at times. When you read the Gospel of Mark, it's like, the, you, you know what the disciples' recurring refrain is? You probably know if you read Mark carefully. There's a recurring refrain of the disciples over and over. Over and over, over and over. Who is this guy? It's kind of like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Who are those guys, right? Some of y'all are Christians. You've never seen that movie, I know. Or some of you say, oh, you can't remember. But that's what they said, right, Dave? Who are those guys? That's the refrain in Mark. Who is this man? And it's crazy because they get the same thing happens twice. They keep, so Mark, uh, Luke. Luke's theological concern is that women and Gentiles are part of this. Women and Gentiles. That's where you see all these stories about women and Gentiles, that they're part of this. It's a, it's a universal gospel. It's a, it's a gospel that includes everybody. And then John, that this great God is the one who began it all. In the beginning was the word, the Logos doctrine. So, so there are differing accounts. Now listen, if in law, at least I, I've never been to court yet oh, as a defendant. <laughs> One of the things that I know my attorney friends tell me is this. 
in a court of law, when two people got the same story too exact, what do they figure? It's a lie. They've collaborated. Listen, the very fact that there are differing accounts that have no substantive difference suggests credibility. Because none of them substantively, you know, in one gospel, Jesus is the son of God. And, you know, in the other gospel, he's just God's nephew, you know. <laughs> nothing substantive here. Nothing to look at. Nothing to see in terms of change. So, so the idea of the, of the differing accounts even suggest the reliability. That what they're talking about, they were not trying to concoct some kind of uniform, monolithic understanding of Jesus that he can be packaged up in one gospel and it's all done. The other thing is I've said to my students before, you know, when you say people talk about contradictions, I say, well, that's a pretty technical term. I, I could talk to you about it if you want to. But two angels in Matthew and one angel in Luke doesn't mean a contradiction because if there's one, there could be. Yeah. Plus you might be missing the point. Dead guy is alive. <laughs> Jiminy. Right? Come on. You know? And, and so this idea that these different accounts, you know, all these contradictions, I say, show me one, man. Nothing contradicts in this regard as far as I'm concerned. There may be different point of view. There may be different nuances. There may be different understanding. But Jesus is still dead and he's still alive. <laughs> He's still the son of God, and he still spoke the truth. He still talked about the kingdom of God and not just some phony, baloney, good time, rock and roll idea of life. The matter of different... Listen, that brings me confidence. When I talk to my Muslim friends, I'll say to them, listen, this suggests credibility, not some monolithic guy that can be captured up one book. Yes. Yes. She's asking the question for recording. Uh, that in the Old Testament, we have some of this, that you have the kingly version of, the, of history, the priestly version. They're all going at this from different viewpoints. They're just trying to tell the story. So, yeah, I think that's part of the matter of reading the Bible as literature. So, I don't, don't for me, the resurrection isn't off the page because we see this all through the Bible. Okay? i got to hurry. Um. Uh, the testimony of the apostles <clears throat> and their lives. I did a little research on this. I, I knew some of this, but I want to I try to uh, give you this. How, again, science is the study of causes. How do you account for a cause big enough to have these guys' lives changed radically from cowards to courageous? From, from, from people that were, that, were, that were hiding to those who were declaring it and getting their brains beat out by the Jews. You know, th think about this. Let's, 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 let's establish some credibility. If a witness, my, my buddy Dan says it this way, has skin in the game. In other words, their witness will help them to avoid punishment or receive some reward. Not much credibility. You know, we've seen it on TV, you know, some guy's testifying against a guy that is in jail with him. And then they say, he said, I heard him say this. And then the, they cross-examine and say, well, did the state offer you a reduced sentence for you to give this? Yeah. Okay, Your Honor, I want that in the record. This guy has something to get, be gained. Okay? 
I would argue with you, not argue, I would suggest, that's a theological, I would argue, well, sometimes I do, but anyway, I gotta stop. That, that the idea that they didn't have anything to gain is important. Now, that, that, that's a little, however, if, say it this way, if a witness does not profit from their testimony, if, not, if, if, they, don't, if they don't profit, you know, there's no, they're not getting anything out of it, they're just telling the truth, there's some credibility there now. Now, 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 that, now they're credible. They're credible. Third level. However, if a witness will experience loss, pain, and danger because of their testimony, super credibility. In other words, if this witness, when they tell this, they're going to get it in pain, in difficulty, in trouble, super credible. Let me ask you something about these guys. All 10 of them, there were, well, all 11 of them paid for this with their life. They did not gain anything. Let's think about it now. You, you study the lives of the apostles. They didn't get rich. They didn't get powerful. They didn't become part of the political elite. Every one of them but John died of martyrs. And the only thing he had to do at 90 was work in a copper mine. You know, no big deal, right? Really. You know? He, he did not die a martyr's death, but he did have to work in a copper mine for the Roman government. Peter and Paul. Paul is beheaded. Peter's crucified upside down. Andrew goes to the land of the man-eaters, which we understand to be the Soviet Union. He's crucified. Thomas. Thomas goes into the area of eastern Syria and he's pierced through with spears. Philip, <clears throat> in the mystery of North Africa and Asia Minor, he converts the wife of a Roman proconsul in retaliation. The proconsul of Rome puts him to death cruelly. Matthew, he goes to Persia and Ethiopia. He's stabbed to death. Bartholomew, He's a witness that goes to India with Thomas and back to Armenia. He comes to southern uh, Arabia where he meets a martyr's death. James, the son of Alphaeus. He's <clears throat> in the New Testament. He goes to Syria. He ministers. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that he was stoned and then clubbed to death. <coughs> Simon the Zealot. He goes to Persia. He was killed for refusing to sacrifice to the sun god. Matthias, who was chosen to replace Judas, he goes to Syria with Andrew, and he's di he dies by being burned to death. You know, you think if these guys were making this up, somebody would say, time out. I just got the word from Ethiopia, and I'm not doing this, <clears throat> right? I'm not, in listen, we made this up. I didn't really see him. He's not really alive. It was a good run for a while, but this thing's getting serious now. So none of these gained at all. They were super credible witnesses, if you will, to be able to communicate God's truth. So I, I just leave that with you to say, is there a probability of some cause that caused all these? I would argue and suggest it's the resurrection. It's the resurrection. And if any of us are not clear on this, I'm just telling you, Paul has already laid it out. 
This is the hinge pin. You unpack this one, you crack this one, it's over. It's all over. And that's why you'll find if you study these things, I don't necessarily, you know, you can if you want to. I'll give you some names of people to read. They're attacking the resurrection. Always. You know, you, you, you've seen them. The swoon theory that Jesus just passed out. Hey, the Romans were better killers than that. <laughs> right? They, they were better killers than that. Or, or, or that, or that the, the, uh, the, everybody went to the wrong grave. Yeah, it's got the Roman soldiers there. It's got the seal over. It's hard, it's hard to miss. <laughs> yeah, they go. That they stole his body and, you know, they decided this because they wanted to have some great story to tell people. Again, they paid with it with their lives. I'm not, I'm not saying people haven't done extraordinary things before. But here we have a group of people, hundreds of them, who would say, he's alive. And I'm betting my eternity on him. I saw him. I, this, to me, again, is some of the most powerful evidence for the probability. Does that make sense? Now, I, I think I, I'm sure I've got this on your, your, your outline. But uh, I, I just want to tell you a couple of things here and we'll, we'll finish. Uh, Gary Habermas is the first. Uh, he and uh, uh, Lacona wrote this book, The Case for the Resurrection. Gary Habermas is the world's leading authority on the resurrection. If you're really interested in this, he, he is the world's leading. He has, he has studied 1,400 skeptical and non-skeptical scholars about this. He's read everything there is out there. And he is the world's leading authority, I would say, on that. And, and Lacona, the, the guy who worked with him. A little easier read. Some of you may have already read it. The Case for Christ. A Case for Christ by, by Strobel. Uh, you may have read that. It, it's, it's good. It, it, and what you'll do is you'll run into Habermas and Lacona in there in the book, and they'll, he'll be uh, giving you some of the references. This last one's interesting. Uh, this, uh, 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 Richard Swinburne uh, is an Oxford philosopher, <clears throat> still alive, and a brilliant uh, scholar who has written this book called The Resurrection of God Incarnate. Uh, he's a pretty uh, 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 sophisticated thinker. Uh, it's a little more difficult uh, in that regard, uh, but an incredibly brilliant, uh, if you will, scholar uh, that when he wrote this book back in 2005 was considered one of the top books in 2005, um, if you're interested in that. Now, here, here's the way I read books, and so I just, I'm going to end it with this. <clears throat> one way I read books, if I'm interested in them, is I go to the back of the book and get their resources. And I find, okay, who, who are they reading? And who are they quoting? And then, you know, not Wikipedia, you know, but uh, some, some serious resources uh, to go to that and to be able to sort of, so if you're interested in following it out, okay? Now, I want to give you one more thing. I know we got one more, one more, one more blank there, and some of you will have a terrible week. <laughs> <clears throat> so really, so here, well, back, here's my application for you in this regard. Um, read something about this. If it's just Google something on Line, but Google Habermas, Google Lycona, Google Strobel, Google uh, Swinburne, uh, and read some guys that have done some heavy lifting here. And uh, Habermas has got a 12-page thing just on uh, the resurrection uh, that you can just read very easily. Now, if that's all true, um, I, I want to I at least broach the issue here to question two. And I, and I probably haven't answered all your questions. There are lots of questions. But the beginning question, too, is this. Then what kind of God is this? What, what, what kind of God is this? And 
And I, I just want to talk to you just briefly for a second, and I'll let you go. Um, uh, my own life, as you know, I've talked to you about it before, has been a journey for years for me of getting a, what I would call an accurate, correct, biblically, a lot of different terms here, view of God. I grew up in a church that, um, you know, I, 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 the, the, I don't I remember this story, but in a Greek mythology, uh, Damocles, who was a, a king, invited his enemy over uh, to eat dinner. And uh, he was kind of surprised that Damocles would do this, to have, invite him over for dinner. And when he did, he came, this sumptuous meal was laid out. It was just wonderful, you know, and, and all this stuff right here. And when his guest sets down, he, re, he realizes Damocles has, 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 has a suspended a huge sword, razor sharp, over his seat with a single thread. Sort of took the fun out of eating that night. <laughs> right? Man, that's a picture of the way I live the Christian life. I heard about all this great stuff here, all this wonderful things about Jesus and God and all that, but I lived with a sword hanging over me that I thought at any minute God would drop that thing and cut me to pieces. And so my lifelong journey has been to figure out, is that really who God is? Is it like Damocles? I'll invite you to this, this contradictory uh, God who... On the, he looks very generous here, but he'll kill you in a heartbeat. And so I've discussed this with my students over the years, and I've talked about these, what I, we'll pick them up, this, these distorted views. Now, here's, here's the problem with a distorted view of God. I've got to, this will hurt your eyes, so look away. <clears throat> it could. <clears throat> what is that? What kind? White, I, oh, smart people here. What's the model? Crown Vic. Crown Vic. That's not a Crown Vic. <clears throat> Somebody wants a Crown Vic. I have no idea. I, it is a car. I think we can establish that. And it's a white car. But we don't know what it is. Why? The nature, listen to me, this is really important. The nature of a distortion is there some truth to it? But it's not clear. That's a car. That's the truth. But it's sure not clear what it is. Our distorted views of God, there's enough of it that's true that makes it terribly dangerous. Because we think that's it. We think the view of God we have, the concept we have of him, it's just that, well, everybody knows who God is, right? I'm going to tell you what my research tells me, no. That many of us, the struggle of our life is to get this God in focus as to who or what, however you want to say it, this God is. And so I think the first point we're going to deal with here is Getting this clear, if you will, beginning the second question. So as we begin this next week, here, here's where we're going to start. I'm going to begin with what I would consider to be from the biblical, I'm trying to ground these biblically, of what I would call distorted, out of focus views of God. What are they? What, what are, again, you're, you're confident there's, you're seeing God. You're confident oh, there's God. 
the other, the other way I say it, anybody go to the fair? You know, I, you probably didn't ride any ride. Oh, a couple of y'all know ride rides, but go to the fair. You ever been in the Hall of Mirrors? Huh? Yeah, I mean, that's fun, sort of, you know. You go in and, you know, you're this tall, right? But you know that's you, right? Or you go look at it and you're this wide. That's you. Or you're this thin. That's a mirror I want. <laughs> that's one I keep bringing home. Right? Like a, you, you know that's you, right? But you're, it, it's what? Distorted. Distorted. You know that's you. You, you. you understand that, but there's some distortion here. And I, let, me, let me just say, and I will, I'm, I'm, I'll quit. Um, what I find is this with my students. The older you are, and maybe nobody come back next week after I say this, but the older you are and the more invested you are with your view of God, the more painful it is. The more invested you are, I'm not changing. I, this is it. The more invested, the more you're in it, the more painful this can be. When I, when I work with 18, 19-year-olds, they don't know anything, right? And they don't know they don't know anything. And that's life for them, right? They're not as invested. They, they don't have as much that they've built around it. And so I really work with them to do some deconstruction, to do some... Re but I'll just tell you, this can be painful. I'm not... I hope everybody will come back, but... Um, because it, it, it's a good pain uh, to, to, to think through where I might have a distorted, out-of-focus concept, you know? And, and I've told you my own life before. I mean, this has been the journey of my life. I lived under that sword. I finally got mad. <laughs> that probably wasn't a smart idea. <laughs> but I just got mad. I was pastoring a church, Wayne Bolenbacher and I working in Houston together, a church about 1,000 people. I was 28 years old. People thought I knew everything. I really had him fooled, Bill. I really had him fooled. I was loud. I'm, not, I'm actually not that smart. I'm just loud. And, uh, and I, uh, you know, I was working hard. Church growing. Things were going well. People loved me. I mean, who could not love me, right? So, like, like this person and this person. Board of trustees. Uh, and I, you know, I just finally came home to Becky one day and I just said, uh, okay, uh, I'm resigning. I'm resigning the church. <clears throat> Um, leave, we're leaving. Uh, I'm going to graduate school uh, because I hate God. I hate him. And I'm not working for him anymore. It's hard to work for a, job, a boss you hate. It really is. I hate him. I can't please him. Doesn't matter what I do, it's not enough. And I'm done. Now, it wasn't that wise, but I thought, I'm going to, after I got into the seminary, I thought, wait a minute, I'm paying thousands of dollars to go to a theological seminary, and I'm not going back into ministry. <laughs> I didn't think this one through. <clears throat> but, but, but I had the hope. I had the hope. I carried a little notebook around with me. I had the hope that by studying and being around some people that knew more than I did, that, that I could get this worked out. And I remember I was on Interstate 65 going to Indiana one day toward the end of my training, and I'm working through it. I remember writing this phrase. It's in my notebook. You can't find it. It's hidden in a mason jar in the backyard. It said this, I'm beginning to believe you might be different than I thought. 
But if you're not, I don't know what I'm going to do. I just wrote it. I'm beginning to believe or think that you're not like I thought you were. But if you're not, I don't know what I will do. I was at the end of my rope. And I had accumulated all this junk like lint. And it became the journey of my life to fight this stuff off, to find a way to get a clearer, more biblical, more accurate understanding. And by God's grace, I did. <clears throat> I was able to go back in the ministry. Um, I was able to, to have a, a measure of health and strength. I still, when I get tired, I still fight those tapes. They're still up in there, you know. I'm, I'm kind of, a, like Marty said, I'm amazed at what I can't forget and what I can't remember. <laughs> I can't remember what I need to and I can't forget what I shouldn't. <laughs> Man, I can't. That was deep when he said that. I, Marty's deep. Sometimes he's muddy, but he's deep. <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble now. I'm way off point. So I'm just, I'm just, I'm just telling you, I, don't, I just want you to be prepared. We're going to try to walk through some of the common distortions. If you're interested in this, you could read a book called J.B. Phillips, uh, not J.B., J.B., called Your God is Too Small. It's a classic book written back in the 60s. I think we have in our bookstore, Your God is Too Small. Uh, uh, Bill Havels wrote a book called The God You've Always Wanted. You know, uh, there, there are lots of, lots of resources out there. So let's pray. That's where we're going. <clears throat> That's the second question. Lord Jesus, uh, we, I hope that we all have a little bit better sense that the resurrection is the centerpiece and that there's good, good reason, good probability that we can trust you in this. Um, I'm, we're envious of those guys that actually saw you. I wish that would happen for us. We know that's not the way it works. But we have some credible witnesses here that give us every reason to believe that you're real and you can make that known in our own hearts. So help us to live this week as people that believe the resurrection. Then as we um, kind of dive into this, dig into this, help us to to open our hearts to what might be some areas of distortion or just some accumulated ideas that we picked up that we may need to challenge. And we'll be careful. Give your name the praise as we live this week. We praise you, Jesus, for it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.